The last of the great human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. And I can extract myself from the suffering because my attitude can trump my ego's frustration about the situation if I lock in power of my mind to choose differently. I'm gonna master this thing called teaching and I'm gonna do whatever it takes, I'm gonna travel whatever distance, I'm gonna pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. And I'm not gonna let any human being on the face of this planet stop me, not even myself. And genius is available in all of us in the area of our highest value when we care enough intrinsically to be inspired to go after solving those problems. It's, it's waiting for all of us to do that. We can expand our awareness, consciousness, to expand who we are as beings into this new human being that we're becoming. It's the tension and the contrast that actually helps to push us through to the next level of evolution. Our cells have consciousness and so does the bacteria. So we can also tune into our bodies and, and work with our bodies more knowing that and appreciating these billions of points of consciousness. Now when that change takes place, the momentum that's created in our life from that moment on is monumental insights, the wisdom, the guidance, the direction, the spontaneous goodness, serendipity, coincidence, things start to work together for good because we're now in a flow of our personal mind, but we're in the flow of the mind of God. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast. This is a show entirely devoted to the exploration of physical vitality, emotional well-being, and mental fitness. I'm your host and tour guide, Ronnie Landis. I'm a multiple published author, international speaker, performance health coach, global activist, and wellnesspreneur. So buckle your seat, get ready to take notes, and enjoy the ride. It's go time. Before we start the show, I want to highlight one of our sponsors, which is an incredible superfood and alchemical herbal nutraceutical company called Now Alchemy. I've been working with the Now Alchemy products for well over six years and have seen this company grow and expand through the leadership of my dear friend, Archer Love, who is the founder, CEO, and chief formulator for all of the products they provide. They offer a wide range of plant-concentrated tinctures designed to improve immune function, regulate our stress response, improve sleep quality, enhance cognitive function, improve the cell-to-cell communication of our mitochondrial energy production, and support all aspects of bodily health. Some of my favorite products I use on a regular basis are the Ormus Plus, the Limitless Formula, the Immortal, their Shilajit formula, and their Vitality product, to name a few. They also offer unique formulations such as C60 for detoxification and cellular EMF protection, Nano CBD combined with Ormus Minerals, and their Atlantis formula, which is an algae-based, non-oxidized omega-3 product. I love the entire product line and appreciate the integrity to quality that Archer puts into all of his products. You can learn more by going to www.nowalchemy.com and use the coupon code HUMANPOTENTIAL, that's HUMANPOTENTIAL, all one word, to get a discount on your order. Now, let's get ready for today's show. 
Greetings and aloha. Welcome to another edition of the Holistic Human Optimization Show. I am your host, as always, Ronnie Landis. Today's episode is Season 3, Episode 2, and we are diving deep into the mind-body connection, which expands extremely deep into multiple areas of the human experience. As you probably noticed from our first episode in this series that we did on the timeless mind, ageless body concept, that was an incredible download that I was very, very thankful when I concluded that recording that I was able to synthesize and cross-pollinate, connect all of those different ideas that I've um, studied independently, separately from one another, and then just drawing in the connective thread that unifies them all together, particularly when we got into the brain states, and then also talking about the energy principles, the three particular stages of energy within the quantum experience, otherwise known as For simple terms, manifestation, attracting, or I would say just creating from a place of embodiment and how it works on a quantum level, a mechanics level. And when you get embodied in your body and you learn to work with your energy centers and you understand where your energy centers are, your power is, you understand where your fear is, you understand where all these different sensory response patterns are in your sensory system. You're able to mobilize that energy ultimately to get to a point of pulsation and stability. So stabilizing the central pulse that is pulsing like a heartbeat, but not necessarily as a heartbeat, but pulsing at the center of our system, the center of our being, ultimately where the signature of the soul resides, which um, is an interesting topic in of itself that let's just say that's where your power resides. So when you're moving from that place, you're fully centered and the energy has more potency, more power, and it's ultimately more effective and efficient than, um, you know, the ways that we run our energy, typically speaking. Uh, we, we really dove into a lot in that episode and I'm really grateful for it. And that was the great introduction into this series, the mind body connection. Now, uh, we are going to dive deep into a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and it's a topic that I've only really scratched the surface in, surface in any real public way. I have a video on YouTube, which is like, um, I think it's Education on Psychedelic Plants 101. It's like a 15-minute video. Great video, great introduction, great ideas and insights. Uh, We're going to go so much deeper. I've been wanting to talk about these themes for a while. And, um, you know, I've had to go through my own initiations, my own experiences, and also double down on the research on a lot of these, not just the the plants themselves, but the overall kind of context in which I um, I would synthesize entheogens or psychedelic plant medicines because this is no easy topic to tackle in an episode like this. As you are probably well aware, I don't like to skim the surface. I don't like to dilute or water things down. I like to synthesize them. I like to distill ideas or complex ideas into their base principles. But at the same time, it does require a bit of a journey 
to get to those places. So it's not just regurgitated information, right? That's not my purpose with any of these episodes is to take you on a journey, to take you through my thought process, to take you through my own perspectives. How did I even come to these perspectives? And also, where did this information come from? Or maybe not so much where did the information come from, but how to make sense of the information so you have the context and you have the content. And one thing that plant medicines do teach you is that in our world, the hyper-materialistic, mechanistic, do-do-do all the time kind of world, linear world, we focus on the content. But oftentimes the content is missing the context and the context informs the content. In other words, the purpose for why you're doing what you're doing is just as important and many times more important than what you're doing because the potency and the effectiveness of what you're doing and the morality, the moral compass, the virtues of what you're doing need to often be tempered by the purpose. If you're just doing things without purpose, then you um, are participating in the current world that we have, which is just science without philosophy, which is just chaos, progress for progress sake, but it's not actually benefiting anybody um, and certainly not the planet in that approach. But when you understand why you're doing what you're doing or why you're researching what you're researching, then it changes the entire phenomenon of the content itself. And it actually takes you on a unique journey that is tailored specifically for the individual. And that is exactly actually how a plant medicine works. It's tailored for the individual, but the individual does have a part to play. They have an intentional part to play. They have a self-directed, co-facilitated part to play in any real trans, trans, um, transformational process. So, you know, with that said, wow, we have so much things to get into. It took me like two days to actually put together all the notes and the bullet points that I felt were critically important to really do this topic justice and give you an experience to do you justice. And um, let's see, we, we might I might end up jumping around a little bit. It may not seem like it because I'm looking at kind of a, a bunch of bullet points, which I'm just going to elaborate on just to keep me on track. Um, but let's see, where do we start with a topic like this? I mean, what I'm going to be talking about is multi it's, it's, it's a few different things. I'm going to be talking about archetypal perspectives. I'm going to be talking about my own personal experience, and we'll see how personal I get. I don't know. I'm completely open. Um, I'm going to talk about the scientific research. Not going to go too deep into that. You can go on YouTube. It's all there for you. I don't need to rinse and repeat that deep, deep information. I think I'm going to give what's necessary so you have a working knowledge of how these things work. But beyond that, I want to go to the heart of things, which is ultimately really where we need to go in anything at this point is we got to get to the heart of things. And that's what these plant medicines, these plant teachers do. I think um, the first place I want to start is actually giving an actual definition of two terms that many people may not be aware of and may even have been culturally indoctrinated to believe are something other than what they really are. So let's talk about this word entheogen really quick. Now, entheogen, when you break it down, its direct translation is 
to generate the divine from within. N, right, like the word N alludes to endogenous, something that is produced or generated from within. Theo, relating to God or the divine theology, the study of the divine. And then gen, like a generator. The word hydrogen, by the way, we've talked about hydrogen, means to generate hydration. Just a little side note. So entheogen means to generate the divine from within. Now, the word psychedelic, people get that confused with the word hallucinogen. And I don't like the word hallucinogen. Me and my friend and colleague, Dr. Dan Engel, he was a guest on my show a couple times recently and also about four years ago when I started the podcast. And, uh, you know, I kind of riffed with him on this, which is the word hallucinogen is misleading and inappropriate because it leads somebody to believe that um, these experiences that people are having that I've had many of are just the byproduct of chemistry that's being produced in the brain. And yes, that does have a factor to it, but that also alludes to the fact that we are wired for visionary experiences. And what's actually happening is that we're tapping into particular regions of our brain, not just the brain, but the nervous system interface and in our DNA itself is encoded ancestral imprinted information, ancestral memories that may be of our direct experience, maybe in past lives, or are just psychic content that's floating around what's called the noosphere, the collective psychic soup that we all live in and we're all connected through what's called the unified field. I'm going to talk a little bit more more about that in my personal experience and why I know that the unified field is the deal, why it's a real phenomenon and um So the word psychedelic actually means mind manifest, mind manifest. So what that means is that, you know, it alludes to your ability to manifest through the appropriate use of your mind. And that's what some of these experiences can offer to you is they can show you how you've been inefficient, ineffective, and potentially inappropriately using your mind and using your imagination in ways that are detrimental and de-evolutionary opposed to using your mind in ways that are evolutionary and transcendent, producing transcendent-like experiences and actually showing you where you need to make course corrections in order to get on the unique path of your own soul dharma. That's ultimately what I believe these things are doing. And it's very fascinating now cross-referencing a lot of the neuroscience, um, the the psychology aspect of it, the nutrition aspect of it, um, and, uh, you know, what's going on particularly in the brain. But how that also is cross-corroborating what the mystics have been talking about for so long and what individuals like Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and Dennis and Terrence uh, Terrence McKenna – Back in the the early the mid 1900s, the mid and, and you know 1960s and 70s and and so on, we're talking about, but didn't have all of the conclusive scientific information that we do now, thanks to neuroscientists and psychologists that have been deeply, deeply fascinated by the irrefutable healing potential that these things have, and we're we're going to go a little bit more into that as well. So these are all just – this is super fascinating um, stuff to just really you know, think about, to understand, to explore, 
Um, I would assume that many of you listening to this have your own unique and direct experience with some of these um, plant medicines. I certainly have many experiences. And, um, you know, I got really fascinated with the psychonautical exploration when I got really into Terrence McKenna's work. And Terrence McKenna was a famous ethnobotanist. I think he passed away in 1999 or 2000, one of those. And, you know, I really got deep into his work. He's an incredible orator and communicator of complex and entertaining ideas and a great storyteller and just a really great and incredible advocate for expansive experiences of consciousness and the psycho the psychonautical psychedelic experience and just really exploring the fringes of what's behind the scenes of our own consciousness. And that's how I really got deep into it. I started studying his work first before I actually started really experimenting. Now, like a lot of people, you know, I had my first psilocybin mushroom experience when I was in high school. Certainly was not based in reverence. It certainly wasn't any kind of ceremony. It was actually at a party. And when I look back on it, it's interesting because that was the most frightening, um, uh, traumatic experience. And probably wasn't traumatic. It was probably actually helping me move through trauma, but I didn't know what was happening. And long story short, I took some mushrooms at a party and um, everything went pretty crazy. I didn't know what to expect. It was my first time doing it. And I had to have some friends rush me home. And, um, uh, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to sleep. And they're like, no, do not go to sleep. And I just like, I got out of the car. I went into my room and thought I could just lay down and just sleep this off. What ended up happening was that as I closed my eyes, the trip got deeper and I started crying a lot. And what ended up happening, I can't remember all the little nuances. There was a lot of visionary stuff, a lot of visuals. But this, the emotions that were being processed were dormant emotions related to the father that I never had in my life and certain certain dynamics in that. I remember certain dynamics to do with that. And there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of purging, which was ultimately probably very healthy. But in that moment, it was deeply um, – it was just something I never wanted to go back to, let's just say. So I never did for – you know. Until uh, uh, I would say maybe seven, eight years ago. And then I started experimenting with raw chocolate based, um, you know, uh, psilocybin infused mushroom chocolates that also were complemented by tonic herbs and minerals, which I've had many different experiences with those and experimenting with those particular spaces. And then I've also had multiple experiences with what I still believe to be my key teacher when I need her, which is ayahuasca. And we're going to talk more about that. I also have direct experience with Iboga. I have direct experience with 5-MeO-DNT. And I also have direct experience with a few other things, which I'm not going to dive deeper into because this isn't really meant to go so far and wide, we're going to we're gonna get to what we can get to. But I want to just kind of convey to all of you openly and up front that um, I'm not only a researcher, I'm an experimenter, I'm an investigator. Now, I have a very clear and rational um, understanding of these things. And I don't treat them really that much differently than I would maybe um, – a really powerful tonic herb, other than the fact that these are not things that you do recreationally. I am clear on that. 
there is a set in a setting. There is an intentionality. There is a deep need for reverence and respect. And before we get into more of the psychedelic side of things, I want to, or uh, more of the, you know, talking about these specific medicines and stuff. What I want to talk about is setting up a frame and context for why these things are so powerful. And by the way, this is not something I'm endorsing for anyone listening to this. This is something that you have to, you have to investigate for yourself. You have to feel a call towards it. And in certain settings, particularly clinical settings, these have been shown to be extremely effective, more effective than literally anything for things like anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome in particular. Um, you know, and this has all been shown through organizations like maps.org, Hefter. John Hopkins has now launched a center for psychedelic research and um, doing, doing monitored clinical studies with individuals that are safe in a set and they have a setting and they're, they're properly guided. It's a proper facilitation. And, um, that is really incredible. Finally, people in these academic fields are realizing that these are not something to be shunned or shamed or illegalized, which is completely ridiculous because the biggest drugs going are like alcohol, um, chemicalized tobacco, um, junk food, excess sugar, factory farm meat, dairy products. Like food basically is the biggest drug, but we don't think we don't think twice about that. So, you know, that's just something, that's a little side riff right there, something we should all just be aware of. Now, let's get beyond that. Where I want to start with this, whether you're considering an experience like this or you've been through it or whatever the case is, you just want to understand this better. One of the things I want to I want to contextualize here is that in my personal experience and my understanding of these things from a shamanic perspective, a cultural perspective, ethno-botanical perspective, meaning the cultural history of the botanicals or the the plants that have been used for hundreds and thousands of years by the shamans and the medicine men and women of, of villages all across Particularly, you know, think of like Africa with Iboga. You think of the Amazon River Basin um, with ayahuasca and, and now into Costa Rica and South America and, um, you know, in, in Mexico with psilocybin mushrooms and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There is a cultural context that these individuals operate within and it's based on it's based in traditional medicine and initiation ceremonies by the cultures that have practiced these things, again, for hundreds to thousands of years. These plants are commonly referred to as master plants that teach us how to heal ourselves and to reintegrate back into the natural world as well as the spiritual world as well. So there's a spiritual component, there is a psychological component. And there's an emotional, physical component, but ultimately what these things are traditionally are initiation devices to help initiate an individual from, let's say, teenage years, like a, like a warrior, like going into the warriorhood and the responsibility of becoming an adult, taking a, a, a young man and bringing him through the birth canal of manhood through an initiation process 
in a death and rebirth cycle of the ego identity. And that's how I'd also like to explain it for just generally speaking. This is a death and rebirth cycle of the egoic identity structures that we have built mostly through social engineering, through the societal conditioning and the roles that we play and have been imposed upon and all the programming and all that kind of stuff. What these things will do and facilitate if properly done, I want to cue that properly done, is they will facilitate a necessary identity death which can lead to the rebirthing of a more authentic and a more virtuous, morally directed identity that is connected to the, the harmonic cycle of all of life. That is a, that's, a, that's a very good way to say it, I think. And one of the things that these help us do in any initiation, we all go through initiations, and some of us have never had an initiation, so we desperately are yearning for that as part of the transformational mechanism. It's critical to go through rituals and transformation or initiations for transformation to fully occur within an individual. One of the things about that and what these do is they help to they help somebody in facing the inception of our long-held fears and phobias. And this is one of the most important functions that these um, substances really show so much benefit in. I have my own personal experiences is complete evidence of that, is that we carry irrational fears and phobias and traumas and wounds and stories and these things that we've wrapped around to essentially insulate our heart from the world because we haven't been able to reconcile whatever the case is. And then we also are operating with irrational fears that really limit us in, in immense ways in the world and create self-sabotage and self-defeating um, patterning, which does not allow us to not only be who that we are truly are, but also allow us to maximize what we can contribute and really live the dreams that we're here to experience. So giving us a safe set and setting to face these irrational fears and the phobias, not just to face them, but also to see the connective inception point of what wounds inside of us, what voids inside of us that these things are linked into. And it helps clear that both through the physical, biological chemistry and also through the integration of, a, of an evolved psychic um, phenomenon, which is basically just the healing of the mind complex and opening the heart. So the integration of the human being and the, the healthy identification of the ego can really take place. One of the things, too, about this is that when you're going into one of these experiences, at least in my experience and, and almost everyone I've talked to who, who's had a number of these experiences, is that there is a healthy trepidation that sometimes occurs prior to the experience. There might be some butterflies that come up. There might be some little bit of anxiety, a little bit of nervousness, some doubt. This is totally normal, and it's actually a healthy sign. If you go into an experience like this and you're cocky and you're just overconfident, um, that, is a, that is a great recipe for a dark night of the soul. Um, that's been my experience for sure. Um, there's, a, there's a necessity for humility and reverence, which also helps to open the heart so there's more of an access point to what you the medicine that you really can get out of the experience and the healing out of it 
one of those benefits is helping people have a reprieve from the fear of death. That is one of the most common experiences. Um, and there's certain things, particularly 5-MeO-DMT I found, is one of the most potent initiators for that particular phenomenon, the, the fear of death. And also in, um, you know, in MAPS and HEPTA and the John Hopkins studies, they've also shown incredible, incredible efficacy for supporting people that were transitioning into death and using psilocybin in particular to support them in, in, in clearing that fear so they could, they could really reconcile that fear of transitioning and have an experience that was inviting them into the next stage of their, you know, their, you know, consciousness essentially without the fear and and lingering or, or latching on to life and to their regrets and the things that they didn't get done and all that kind of thing. It helps them to, to release that hold so they can go, they can transition with gratitude and appreciation and the knowledge that this is not where the road ends. That is, that is one of the most important things. We have so many people in our world that are clinging on to life and paradoxically, they're not able to live their life because they're afraid of what's on the other side. And once you clear that phobia of death, then your heart opens. Your soul can start to embody the physical body and you can start to live authentically and without the fear of any of these, you know, these social repercussions or, you know, these things that we worry about and get totally wrapped up in. And then we realize like nobody was really thinking about us anyways. Two people are too busy thinking about themselves. So why was I worried my whole life about stepping on people's toes and, and um, ruffling their feathers and rocking the boat? And I should have just done what it was that I wanted to do all this time. And now I'm on my deathbed and I can't go back. This is what's going on with people all the time. And so if you can be preventative and prophylactic and have that experience earlier on, then, you know, then you're going to be all the better for it. Um, But also for people that are at that stage that can't go back, at least we can help them go forward with a clear spirit. Okay. So another thing about these experiences, the entheogenic psychonautical experience is that it's deeply an archetypal experience, right? Archetypes are, archetypes are immutable aspects of our collective psyche, our human experience. They're usually conveyed or expressed in symbols, um, you know, superheroes, comic books, um, the hero, the villain, the sage, the psychopath, the, the, even the masculine, the feminine, um, all these different things are archetypal in nature. And they, they help to integrate into our own psyche who and what we are. And they help integrate our own sense of identity and um, it's a, that's a deep topic in of itself. I recommend the work of Carl Gustav Jung and Joseph Campbell, and particularly Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. And that's how I would like to also open up um, what I believe these experiences are. 
other than what I've already shared, which is that ultimately they're an invitation to go on your own unique human or yeah, your own unique hero's journey. One of the things that I've experienced time and time again, and it always is a surprise when I'm in that experience because it can be such a shock to the ego. It literally can dissolve the ego rapidly depending on the substance and the administration and the the onset of the alkaloids that initiate that that chemical onset the ego can get can be dissolved very very rapidly and um you can be in this 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 kind of like no man's land so to speak and um it's just you and you all the people and all the 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 relationships and the identities and the roles and everything that is gone now, you may have experiences that, that reflect those compartments or those components archetypally, but ultimately, it's you and your soul, your higher self, and whatever the, the experience is, it's a hero's journey, and it really does take a heroic quality and a courageous quality to embark in these experiences responsibly and consciously because you, are, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what's behind the curtain. You may think you know, but when you're having a powerful experience that really takes you deeper than you've ever gone, then, you know, there might be some trauma there. There might be some wounding there. There might be some repressed parental experiences that you never really processed or didn't even have the ability to process because immediately as a child, when we experience trauma or disconnection, we will repress and redistribute the psychic material throughout our, our um, nervous system in our body, and it gets stored into the nervous system. And our, our, the idea is that it would be reprocessed later, but as we go through the conditioning process of um, you know, a child into our developmental and formative years, we usually don't have an initiatory experience to pop those experiences back out into our awareness. So it can be a bit of a surprise. And this is why the set and setting is so critical and crucial. There's a safe facilitation because ultimately when you're in these experiences, the last thing you want to do is contract. The last thing you want to do is resist and fight. Um, And this will show you where your deep resistances are. You want to be able to work with your breath and funnel your breath as a way to move the energy and process whatever it is that needs to be processed, it needs to be experienced, it needs to be seen and acknowledged, and ultimately it needs to be healed so you can move on with your life from a clear channel, not a channel that's working at like 50% efficiency, but a channel that's working at 100% efficiency, and that is a that is a process of going through initiatory experiences um, processing old trauma, but then effectively integrating the new habits and behaviors in operating system through ritualizing meditation and breath work and healthy lifestyle and exercise and movement patterns and things that lead you to being the best version of yourself, not regressing back into um, back into old patterns and um, so one of the things I want to mention here too, and this is this is getting really interesting. There's a few notes here that I really feel are important to, to continue this, this train of thought here. So what we're talking about is an opportunity to move away from faith-based spirituality, which is basically like, you know, it's 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 somewhat pseudo-spirituality. You could throw religion in there for sure, but it's kind of like the new ageist movement where you have a lot of people that 
their spirituality is entirely based on faith. And faith is important. I'm not knocking faith. Faith is evidence in that which is unseen but felt deep within inside. But let's maybe we'll say hope-based spirituality. Maybe that's the right way of saying it. Most people are running on hope, but they're not running on personal direct experience other than the experiences that maybe aren't, maybe are more negative and are holding trauma, right? And we're trying to escape from that by being uber, super duper spiritual, as like JP Sears says, ultra spiritual, putting on a smile when you really don't feel happy and not acknowledging what's really going on, these these uh, medicine portals give you the opportunity to really feel what's going on and to heal. So when you do smile, that smile is coming from your heart and your soul. It's not something that you cosmetically put on your face to make people think that you're happy when you're not, right? <sighs> the next thing I want to mention too is that there's also another incredible effect that I've witnessed. I've, I, I have stories. I'm going to, man, how much time do we have? I'm just checking my time here because I actually have a, a sweat lodge session coming up in about an hour and 15 minutes. And I feel like if I just sat here and told stories, I could go well beyond that time. This is my priority, though. With you guys right now in this message, I've been waiting days to do this. This is my priority. So... One of the things that I've experienced and many people experience, and it's also you know documented through cross-referencing of past life regressions, um, psychotherapy, more like hypnotherapy, um, different types of those, those type of modalities, there is a lineage cleansing effect or there's potentially a lineage cleansing effect, a generational healing and a karmic completion component that I have experienced more times than I can personally say. In fact, I'm actually going to tell you a deeply, deeply personal story, probably the most intense medicine ceremony I've ever had. In fact, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to tell you one story for each four of these particular um, super plant teachers that I want to talk about. How about that? Um, So as we move forward, one of the problems that we see in our world that is directly supported and, and alleviated in a lot of cases by these type of explorations is that we live in a world that is suffering from a meaning crisis. The biggest issue in our world ultimately is the crisis of meaning. People don't know who they are. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They don't know what they want to do or they won't admit it to themselves. And ultimately, they're living a life without meaning. And so what these things do is they help trigger an existential sense of meaning. What is the meaning of my existence? What am I here to do? What are my gifts? What is there really a God? Is there really a divine protector? Is there really a creator that I came from some kind of creative divine source? Or am I just here on this round earth or this flat plane, whatever you believe, I'm not going to go into that. What, am I just here by myself? Right? Is there truly a divine father and a in a um, an earthly mother, or is all that just made up and just woo woo and and just something people tell themselves to make themselves feel better? Those answers get answered very quickly and experientially. So your spirituality and your particular flavor of that 
becomes a direct experience. It's not something you're hoping, like a lot of religions ride on hope and the the idea that you are going to live a faithful life. But faith in what? If you haven't experienced something viscerally, deeply impacted you, then you don't you don't really know anything about it. It's just it's hope at best. It's not true faith. True faith is something you feel and it guides you, even if it may be invisible to others. Your inner vision is guiding you. And that's also part of what these do. Um, One thing I want to bring up is I want to talk a little bit about Western psychotherapy and um, what, you know, as it connects to the, the topic here, there was a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that is one of the most incredible books literally ever written in, um, you know, in, in the last hundred years of literature, if not more. Absolutely critical book. I recommend everybody get it. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who was in Auschwitz in the concentration camps. And he was tortured, he was beaten, he was urinated on, all the atrocities. He saw his entire family or friends or all the people around him murdered. And he talks about how he got through that. How he got through it was that he adopted a sense of meaning that he was going to get out of this. He was coming come out alive and he was going to tell his story to the world. And that sense of meaning is what pulled him through the depths of sorrow and despair and torture. And in his book, he says that the last great was the last great human freedom is the ability to control their attitude or to change their attitude. And it's really hard to change your attitude if your attitude and your brain chemistry is stuck in a sympathetic stress state and you have trauma and you have hungry ghost addictive compulsions like Dr. Gabor Mate says, and you're trying to access these things from the level of the mind. It's hard to change your attitude. Now, you have the power to do it like Viktor Frankl did, but it's very challenging to do, especially in our immediate gratification, go, go, go culture. And when we look at things like Western psychotherapy, although it can be supportive and helpful, it's ultimately ineffective. And one of the things is like it's just based on talking, right? Talking out your problems, talking out your experiences. That can be helpful to a point. But one of the problems is you can also talk yourself back into the, the loop of your the patterning of those problems and actually reinforce the story. What we need to do is clean the slate altogether and rewrite and script a brand new story. And so many people have said that different forms of entheogenic or plant medicines are like doing 10 years of therapy in a single session. I can attest to that for sure. I can completely attest to that. I've seen it in front of me. I've seen it with other people. There's so many people that talk about that, and I've had that experience myself. So that is the context. (laughs) That is a series of contexts that I want to lay forward before we go deeper. Now, just a little bit about the, the science here that I want to I want to mention. Now, what exactly is happening in the brain that allows us to have these non-ordinary altered states? Well, you have something in your brain called the default mode network, and it's ultimately like a filter. So there's so much data that's coming into the interface of our our, our mind or our brain, if you will, and our mind or our brain 
technically your brain has to filter the vast majority of information and data that's coming at you. Otherwise, you'd probably go into a space of psychosis. You wouldn't you wouldn't have the operating system with the capacity to take it in and actually integrate it properly. It would overwhelm the system, right? So we, we set up through the reticular activating system, the RAS and the default mode network, a filtration system that lets in what's, what seems to be a relevant data to our day-to-day experience. Now, the challenge with this is that if you're not intentional about your day-to-day and where you're going and your habits and and where you're moving and you're not in some kind of growth process, a novelty-based process where you're moving to new experiences, then you get caught in the same habits and patterns and then you became the same person that you were every single day before and then that's all that's being filtered into you, what's relevant to those that particular patterning, if that makes sense. So what this does is it shuts off the default mode network and you have an completely new depth of experiences and, and visionary symbolism and archetypal kind of information coming in and your empathy circuitry is turned on. Your heart is opened up. Literally, like these things, the circuitry that runs your empathy, right? Empathy isn't just an emotion. Empathy is a state of being, actually. It's not an emotion. It's a state of being. And there's a brainwave state associated with sympathy, empathy, and compassion, Um, like gamma and hypergamma and theta and these kind of things. Those are associated with what we think of as emotions. Those are more just receptive, connective states of being. And that's ultimately what starts to happen. You have more of a synchronization of the right and left hemispheres of the brain. So there's more of a communication between all of that data that has been encoded into the different regions of the brain. And as my mentor, my colleague, and now my friend, Michael Tessarian, he said in one of our interviews in our podcast, the second interview, he discussed that the right hemisphere of the brain actually stores our ancestral trauma. You know, people are like, oh, the right hemisphere, that's creativity, inspiration, and and all that kind of stuff. Yes, and what might be blocking our creativity is deep, deeply embedded wounding based on our genealogical bloodline and the whatever, the epigenetic phenomenon, whatever is carried over that we're storing and carrying, maybe it's the collective psyche, the noosphere that we're also processing. I don't know exactly what it is. What appears to be the case, though, is that ancestral wounding and trauma that's never been reprieved, that's never been reconciled or globally acknowledged. You can think of the Native Americans or think of the Chinese that were taken over here in the development of our current society. You can think of you know, the, the Africans that were enslaved through hundreds and hundreds of years, the, 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 um, the Holocaust in my lineage in Armenia and the genocide. I mean, I know I had an experience with that, which I'll talk about in a minute. That stuff is stored inside of us. And so this, yeah, I just, I'll just make that point. I'm not going to go any further with that. That's a pretty hard point to make right there. I'll just make that point. Another thing that some of these, these medicines are doing is that they're they're activating the serotonergic receptor sites and their serotonin agonists, not serotonin antagonists, because something that's a serotonin or a dopamine antagonist means that it antagonizes or depletes 
our serotonin and dopamine. These are actually agonists, so they help to potentiate or activate those pathways, and so our brain is flooded with more serotonin and potentially more dopamine or GABA or whatever the whatever the, the neurotransmitter is. Serotonin has been well documented, though. Very, very good to know about. Just a little bit of the neuroscience on it, what's going on in the physiology. Now, with the time that we have left, I'm going to attempt to convey uh, these things in an organic way, not force, but um, I want to kind of go through this in the next 30 minutes, hopefully. So let's talk about ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is also known as Banisteriopsis copy. And the Banisteriopsis vine, now ayahuasca is made of two, traditionally it, it is a, it's a sacred brew combined with two main components, the Banisteriopsis copy vine, which has the monoamine oxidation, oxidative um, molecule, the MAOI, which helps to inhibit the depletion uh, or the metabolization of a chemical called DMT dimethyltryptamine, which is in the chacruna leaves. So they combine these two things together, and then that's what creates over many, many days, and it's brewed, and sometimes they put other other herbs or other, or other plants in there. There's different ways to put it together, but that's the primary principle is those two plants. And, uh, there, man, there's so much that we can say about Aya. Um, so many... So many interesting references, the inception and origin and the stories of how the the peoples claim or believe that ayahuasca came into being, um, how it actually communicated to the native people about itself and told them how to create it so they could bring this into um, consciousness, essentially. And one of the perspectives that I have that I've developed over time is that the natural world has its own consciousness. Now we know that plants have consciousness. Every living being has consciousness. It feels these, this was conclusively discovered in Clive Baxter, Cleve Baxter's um, studies using um, lie detectors testing on plants. I can't go into the deeper on that, but that's the secret life of plants. If you want to get deeper into that, very fascinating. So there is a consciousness that is occurring in these power plants. That's why they call them master teachers. They don't just say that for shits and giggles. They don't just say that for no reason. They're very literal and they have a deep connection with these things in a way that most Westerners and domesticated individuals just can't really understand. Um, until you have these experiences, then you're like, oh, okay. There is definitely additional consciousnesses that are interacting almost like a guide to facilitate the individual on their own journey. It's almost like you have a built-in guide. That's the experience with ayahuasca too. There's almost like a built-in guide that guides you through an entire journey. Like if I thought of the hero's journey associating that with any plant that I, in plant medicine that I have experience with, ayahuasca is the one. My first ayahuasca experience was still the most profound thing I've ever done in my entire life. It, it is left an imprint on me that is um, that will never, ever be shaken. Never, ever be shaken. And um, really the energy of ayahuasca is very earth energy. It's the divine feminine principle of the entheogenic world. 
that so that so there's a divine feminine motherly energy like a grandmotherly energy that is very intrinsic to the earth like mama gaia pachamama right the divine feminine or the oxygen principle as we discussed of the earth right that's um so that that's the energy of ayahuasca and that man i can't even go into that experience because it, it just would take too long but what i will say is that there's a couple of things I'll say about it just to make it short is that I was in a deep meditation. I went through the ultimate journey of my heart and my soul. And I was in a meditative state for a good two hours. I don't know. Actually, I don't know what it was. All I knew is I went through a full on metamorphic experience where I became the embodiment of Lord Shiva, which in the Vedic, the Vedic text is, you know, the divine masculine principle Shakti being the feminine destructor rebuilder principle. Um, I had a full embodiment. It was like, it wasn't just visual. It wasn't just energetic. I literally felt what it was like to be like, like a demigod to be like Hercules. I was like, Oh my God, this level of power that's integrated in my body. I felt my nervous system completely cleared, cleaned off like full functionality of all of my, all the faculties of my being and I felt this immense power and I started doing Qigong and Tai Chi and, and, and just moving the energy and playing with it. Now, when I was in the meditation, at some point, I opened my eyes. It was a completely pitch black room. This was when I first arrived in Kauai. And um, yeah, probably a couple weeks after I got to Kauai for the first time. Perfect place to do it, by the way. And I opened my eyes, pitch black room, and the room was a glow. It was glowing. And I, and I closed my eyes, and then I opened my eyes, and I realized I was, my eyes were externalized, and I was looking at the unified field that all the scientists talk about, all the, the, the quantum physicists, they all talk about this idea of the field. I, for the first time, had the, the visceral awareness, and I saw it like a spider's web, glowing. It was like golden ratios, Fibonacci, golden geometric ratio field right in front of me, all around me. And it was, it was actually what led me to getting out the door to go outside because the room was so dark, and I was like there was so much energy moving through me that I couldn't quite get up. I had to almost like crawl, but it was pitch black. So if that wasn't happening, I never would have got out the door even when and I was, you know, in that altered state. You're a little wobbly. That field actually guided me out the door, crazy enough. Another part of that experience I'll share with you really quickly, and it also relates to something I harp on all the time, which is the quality of water. Now, we had structured um, uh, hydrogen water and it was in this glass dispenser and I walked up to the water and I closed my eyes and I could see the hydrogen and oxygen structuring the molecule structuring in this sacred snowflake-ish like geometry that Dr. Masaru Emoto studies on water and consciousness they show you I could I felt myself influencing the structuring of the water. And I was like, wow, okay, so everything that we've been talking about, everything that we've 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 theorized or talked about is like structured water and your consciousness affects water and all this. I was like, wow, this is real. 
And I drank that water and it was the best water I ever had, partially because I was also dehydrated. Um, but those are some of my experiences. There's some of my personal experiences I could talk about much more, but those were the most potent I could relay. One other thing about ayahuasca that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is that, um, you know, I came across uh, research when I was studying botany and ethnobotany maybe seven years ago. And I came across a researcher by the name of Richard Evan Schultes. He was a famous ethnobotanist, maybe the most famous next to Terence McKenna. And um, he was actually studying an herb called Alex Guayuse. Ilex Guayuse is the cousin of Ilex Yerba Mate. And Ilex Guayuse is the most caffeinated plant in the world, but it's balanced by a compound called L-theanine, which um, has a significantly different effect than, say, coffee, for example. And it's just a noble plant. It's an incredible plant. For some reason, Evan Schultes was fascinated by this, and he went to the Amazon to discover, to find where the Guayuse was. And I'm pretty sure he found Guayuse, but what he also found was the native people who introduced him to ayahuasca. And so that's how we were introduced in the Western world to ayahuasca was through Richard Evan Schultes. And um, I wanted to mention that just as respect to him. And um, yeah. Okay. Um, Oh man, I thought we were done. I'm looking at my notes on just Aya and I'm like, oh man, there's still there's still some things to talk about. Well, I'll just run through this. I'll just run through a couple more things. You can do your deeper research. This isn't meant to be like a full composite of or full like some uh, a full education, I should say, of every one of these things. I'm just sharing a lot of different things that I think is interesting and hopefully you do too. They give you some better education and insight into all this. So we got to talk about DMT, obviously. DMT is the active alkaloid, alkaloid component in ayahuasca and many other medicines. And also DMT can be done individually. So the DMT is also known as the spirit molecule. And there is a book called The Spirit Molecule based on DMT. Definitely worth checking out if you want to go deeper into this kind of stuff and the pharmacology and all that. There's different forms of DMT. In ayahuasca, it's an NNDMT. There's also beta-carbolines and other alkaloids as well. DMT is the main active ingredient. And um, there, there's different forms of DMT. We're going to go into oh, – I'm going to save that for when we go into um, our last thing here. But DMT is a very interesting tryptamine, and it's at the end of the, the chemical pathway of tryptophan, which is the amino acid that triggers 5-hydroxytryptophan, which leads into serotonin, right? Which also leads into, I think, bufatine, and then it leads into melatonin, and then melatonin leads into DMT. Now, there's a lot of different kind of nuances and how to trigger all that. Basically, this does it endogenously for you, and DMT is built into your 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 tryptamine pathways it's built into your brain and into your body and actually most plants in the world have insignificant amounts of dnt dmt in them but in our body we have enzymes that break down dmt so that's why you have an maoi monoamine oxidase inhibitor that inhibits those enzymes from breaking down the dmt in the digestive tract so the the um, the actual medicine can come through and can have its effect, right? 
And then there's another part of the ayah that I find interesting from a nutritional perspective is that there's a phenomenon of purging. Now, all these things have some form of purging. It's not all the same, but most people experience purging in the form of of throwing up, right? I've never, ever experienced that in my, my life. And I've done, you know, I've, I've pushed the button on like dosaging, not that I was trying to purge, but I, my experience is that the medicine actually syncs up with me and integrates into me very quickly. And this is probably also because I've been on the, the lifestyle path that I have and I've done cleansing, I've done parasite cleansing, I've done all that kind of stuff. I don't have any bacterial dysbiosis or candida or viruses or infections. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about this, and I would also theorize that part of ayahuasca's potency and power is not just in the 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 um, the the journey, the psychological journey, but it's also very physiological because a lot of people are overrun with parasites and. Ayahuasca is very anti-parasitic. It has very strong anti-parasitic compounds. It's almost like an anti-parasite substance or, or like a, you know, like a, a fast track detox. And this is why they have what's called a dieta. A dieta is an ayahuasca preparation diet. And they advise in a traditional ceremony to do a diet for at least a week, I mean minimum, but they really talk about doing it for a couple months. And if you're really, truly dedicated, then much longer than that. And the diet actually is how you facilitate the integration process of the experience thereafter. So what they're ultimately alluding to, whether they know it or not, in the, you know, the indigenous sense I'm talking about, we, we can figure this out pretty clearly um, right now, which is that the, the dieta or the dietary cleansing and the particular diet that they recommend, a cleansing diet, a, a elimination diet, is because if you're loaded up with parasites or infections and you come into this, there will be purging to happen. And I've never, ever had that physical purge. And I think that's the reason why. And I also think that that's one of the reasons that it has such a powerful effect on consciousness because parasites and other infections do affect your mind state. They do affect your consciousness. They affect your psyche and your emotions and your thought process and all of that. So I just want to mention that piece as well. The last piece I'll mention about this and the other the other things are going to be a little bit shorter. But the last thing I want to mention with ayahuasca is that in traditional um, traditional settings and one of the most important parts of the experience itself, and I would say this with other experiences too, but ayahuasca is very particular with this, which is that they um, the shaman that's facilitating the experience does what's called ikaros. And ikaros are traditional songs. And I have had I have seen and heard and received some of the most incredible musical, symphonic um, tonalities, tones and things come out of shamans that I've never heard from a human being before. And they're also partially on the medicine. So somehow they're they're able to um, elocute the what is the word elocution. That's like the, the pitch or the tone that you're speaking or singing, whatever that is, they're able to tap into their vocal cords in a way that most people do not have access to. And that is like the carrier wave for the entire experience. So the music is extremely important. And um, there's something I want to mention too, which is a completely side note, but it's interesting nonetheless, which is there is a science called cymatics. 
enzymatics is really just this this way of measuring the the geometrical patterning that occurs within music or within sound. So sound vibration, sound therapy, this is all very real. But then there's a way to measure it. I would say look up cymatics on YouTube or something. And that also just further points out the scientific validity and the what we understand now pragmatically about what these indigenous beings, these indigenous humans knew for all of this time before science was ever really a thing before the you know the science that we have analytical science was ever a thing now we can measure the phenomenons that are occurring um and bridge the gap which i think is super cool so um and we're just we are just going i might not make my uh sweat lodge <sighs> you guys are worth it though okay so the next thing i want to talk about is psilocybin cubensis mushroom psilocybin cubensis mushroom is otherwise known as magic mushrooms there's different varieties of psilocybin mushroom um and one of the interesting things about psilocybin mushrooms is that it you know where i talked about ayahuasca has like this very earth energy my experience is that psilocybin has more of this cosmological interdimensional kind of energy to it, which is very interesting. I always kind of have these dimensional experiences, but actually, well, I'll share that story in just a moment, but just kind of on the out, the, the chemical level, um, psilocybin is a compound. It's an alkaloid that's metabolically, it breaks down and converts downstream into a compound called psilocin. These are the two main active alkaloids in psilocybin mushroom. You may have heard of the famous reindeer, Santa Claus and reindeer story that's associated with mushrooms, which is a pretty interesting story in of itself. Just go on YouTube, type in like Daniel Vitalis, Santa Claus mushroom story. It's a great thing to, especially for Christmas time. It's just a really fun thing. Now that story is not actually associated with psilocybin mushroom. It's associated with Amanita muscaria or Phlegarigus mushroom um which is a whole different thing whole different journey um but just want to make that distinction so my experience i had a very very deep experience with mushrooms i've had a lot of experiences with mushrooms um and i've also had a lot of interestingly somewhat traumatic experiences now that's not anything against mushrooms that's just my own personal experience and realizing that that's not my particular therapeutic medicine um, however, I have had some really potent experiences, one of which I'll share with you, and this is very, very personal, but you know, I'll try to just make it, make it quick. Um, so in Kauai, this is a different timeline in Kauai, you know, I had, um, I had basically just had a major success in one of my online businesses. Um, you know, I was with my, my girlfriend at the time. And with a bunch of friends, and we were just celebrating. It was a huge success. We're celebrating. We went and just like went to this party. Then we came back, and there was this full moon party at the beach. Um, the beach is called Rock Quarries. And, um, you know, we had some mushroom chocolate. So I took some and just kind of just went into it, didn't think anything of it, thought like, wow, it's going to be an enhancement. It's going to be an amazing night. What ended up happening for me is that. Those mushrooms took me deep into some extremely 
powerful ancestral core wounding that literally kept me and my partner in the car. When we got to the beach, it was like two in the morning. We stayed in the car until like six or six thirty in the morning. And it was just like, I won't go into the whole experience, but I basically got transported into a layer and level of wounding that is not of this lifetime. But I felt it and experienced it and purged it as if it was happening right in front of me. And it was like it was like witnessing the genocide of an entire people. I don't know if that's because of my blood, my blood roots into the Armenian culture or um, it was something like a Holocaust or something. That's how deep that was. And so that's the connection of my own direct experience with this idea that in your brain or in your body, there is the, the stored data of ancestral wounding and trauma. And I think that that was Pandora's box that opened up in front, opened up inside of me. Now, I say that for two things. I say that because that was a very, very powerful, yet deeply, deeply sad and painful experience. And I moved through it and I, I cleared an entire level of layer of energy I didn't even know I had on me. I mean, it did connect me deeper to to God or source, if you will. And it's a disclaimer to say that um, if I had really been more intentional and set up a sudden setting and didn't do this as a recreation, but just did it very ceremonially, maybe I could have gone into that experience and processed that more effectively. I don't know. But I say that because, again, these are not play toys. These are not things that we just play with. These are deeply, deeply sacred medicines and very powerful medicines, and it just requires intention and conscientiousness and respect. So that's what I want to say about psilocybin mushroom. There's much more that can be said, but we got to keep it moving here. The last two things I want to just kind of mention here that I've had personal experience with is iboga. And iboga is an African rhubarb that um, really the, the, the African people, they, they would say that this is the plant that enables man to see the dead. That's, that's very interesting. And iboga, the, the active alkaloid chemical in iboga is ibogaine. That's the active compound. And what's interesting about iboga, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting about it that are very distinct from all the other plant teachers. But it has like this grandfather, masculine, rational energy, almost like this ruthless inner voice of truth that you would hear from a very stern father or grandfather, like this no-nonsense, just clear-cut voice of truth showing you where your where your stuff is, where your blocks are, where your incongruencies are, where you're out of integrity, and it's just very straightforward. Now, that in of itself is extremely powerful, just that directness of the medicine and like that grandfather archetype. So ayahuasca is more like the grandmother. Iboga is like the grandfather. And um, I'd really recommend that people that are interested in this Look up Iboga. There is incredible, incredible clinical settings, and um, so many, um, so many back to back to back to back to back experiences of Iboga, particularly for its effect on healing addictive compulsive um, issues 
like, for example, what they found out, what, I, what I've discovered just in my research is that there's a 93% heroin addiction recovery rate using Iboga or Ibogaine therapies. That is absolutely incredible right there. Um, I mean, everything from PTSD to anxiety and all the other things that you might associate, especially in the psilocybin research. Um, but then really dealing with very deep addictive tendencies, things that even ayahuasca or even um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, they can't seem to get to or people still have these challenges after they've had these profound transcendent experiences. Um, Iboga, unlike anything else, has been documented and shown to have the most powerful effects at helping somebody clear those addictive tendencies, maybe that have been with them all of their life, almost overnight. Now that that's a general statement, of course. Do your own or do your own research on it, but it's pretty profound from what the research is showing and what people's personal testimonials are. Now, my experience with Iboga. I've never done the full dose Iboga, uh, you know, set in setting per se. I've never done that. I've never felt called to do that. Although maybe someday I will have that experience. I welcome it. I know it's very intense. I'm aware of that. And um, it's something that a lot of people report to lasting, you know, all the way from 24 hours, even to three days straight. You're completely incapacitated. Um, you were just like, you know, you're in the experience, basically what else can be said? Um, what I did was microdosed it for two weeks. So I did a microdosing of, um, Iboga, the actual, the actual full plant, the full bark. And the experience was interesting. Um, I won't go in depth about it, but I, what I will say is that grandfather energy, I almost felt my own grandfather in that, like when I was doing it and I was recovering from this intense body work that I had done. So I was very bare and raw and emotionally just kind of like, yeah, very raw and on the surface. And I could almost feel this elder grandfather energy just pointing out. It was almost like, Hey, do your taxes. (laughs) You know, it wasn't like some magical profound thing. It was just these little things of like, Hey, get organized. Hey, get your stuff together. Hey, take a look at this. Things that I just compartmentalized, put off to the side, I deemed less important. And it was just bringing all that back to me. That was my experience. There's more things I could talk about, but that's the basic idea. And then the last thing I want to talk about, which is also one of the most powerful experiences I personally have had, is 5-MeO-DMT. So I talked about NN-DMT which is a particular form of DMT that you find in either isolated DMT or you find in ayahuasca, then there's 5-MeO-DMT. Now, this is a whole different substance altogether, a whole different experience. The 5-MeO-DMT extract comes from the what's called the Bufo alvarius toad, and it's a secretion that's produced from the toad and... I, I, uh, yeah, my experience was, was absolutely incredible. I have to say it's the most effective and efficient plant teacher medicine experience I've ever done because it only really lasted about 20 minutes or so. It was a 20 minute experience, but it reset my system and helped me. Literally there was pulsations of electromagnetic energy pulsating through my body 
And because of my experience with meditation and breath work, I could, I could facilitate it and move it through. I knew exactly what was happening. It was basically like a concentrated ayahuasca ceremony, um, but just very accelerated. And also there was no real visuals. It was like I was dropped out of a, out of a plane, like my ego dropped out of a plane upon ingesting it. And um, I just laid down and I was in the void. I was basically just in the void. And what an incredible experience. I also did that in Kauai too. A lot of my experiences have been in Kauai. So the set in the setting is critical. And I would not recommend doing these things really in a city environment. Ideally, you're in nature. Um, the city has so many dissonant and disparate um, you know, energies and Wi-Fi fields and the psychic energy and the stress energy that's moving through the city. I just do not recommend that. So my experiences have mostly been on the islands or in some other area in nature. And um, so they call they call 5-MeO the God Molecule. And it's an endogenous tryptamine, just like NNDMT, 5-MeO DMT is also an endogenous tryptamine molecule that is in our body to begin with. So this is all in us. This is built in us. We are wired for altered transcendent states of being. And, you know, um, my, my, one of my spiritual mentors, Michael Bernard Beckwith, it's so interesting that I remember this because he was in a documentary one time and he was talking about the Moses story. The movie was called The Moses Code. And it was all about the parable of Moses and the metaphors and everything. And he was talking about an experience that he had in the Amazon. And I didn't, I did not tie this together until now. And I'm like, oh, I know exactly what that experience was now. He was talking about walking with the um, indigenous people in the Amazon. And he said that the entire forest was a glow. That was his words. It was a glow. Like there was, it was pitch black. But the whole the whole jungle was lit up, you know, like like, um, you know, Christmas trees and stuff. It was completely lit up. He could see the path clearly. He was talking about that, that experience. And then he was relating it to Moses and the burning push. And, uh, you know, he jokingly said he said the bush was always burning. Moses was just having a good day. I thought that was really funny. And also I just, I realized exactly the experience he was having, um, which gave him that insight, which, Hey, maybe Moses, the story of Moses is actually a psychedelic story that actually makes more sense than anything, right? The burning bush and God animated and communicating through the burning bush. That sounds like a pretty similar experience to a lot of other experiences I've heard about. So I'm not saying it was or wasn't. I'm just saying. Think about it for yourself. So uh, where was I going with that? Um, yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, 5-MeO is just, I, I just, I love it. I'm sure I'll have plenty more experiences with it. I'd recommend if you want to study more about that in particular, there is an educator on the internet. His name's Martin Ball. He has a podcast called Entheogenic Evolution. And his thing is really about non-duality therapy, which is a great place to kind of close this entire episode out, which is that ultimately what these experiences are about is creating a synthesis or a synchronization 
of our brain waves, creating a certain brain state and an embodiment state of our entire physiology where the spirit can infuse itself into the body as a direct felt experience. And we experience non-duality and non-locality. And that gives us that complete unification or that unity connection with the divine and also the divine within us as well. Non-separation. And um, that's a lot of what he talks about and particularly with 5-MeO. And I have to say now that I think about it, that's really what the experience was. It was like non-duality therapy. I was one with God. God was one with me. There was no separation. And uh, it was one of the most incredible experiences uh, to date. So there we go. That is the conclusion of our deep dive into psychedelic plant teachers, entheogens, so many different ideas, contexts, thoughts, perspectives, science, um, my own perspectives and stories that I've, that I've never shared publicly. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that um, you could follow along. I hope it was entertaining. I hope it was exciting. I hope it was intriguing and will support you in your own self-investigation and self-discovery process. Um, that's all I got for you. I got to run to a sweat lodge ceremony. So, you know, everybody have the best day ever. Keep researching, keep studying, keep working on yourself and uh, look forward to releasing the next episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of High Performance Health. Remember the saying, knowledge is power. Well, knowledge is only power when the knowledge has been applied. So, before you leave, I want to recommend five basic principles that, if done each day, will result in physical vitality, emotional well-being, and increased mental agility, as well as overall resilience to all forms of stress. Number one, take 10 deep diaphragmatic breaths each morning when waking up and each night before sleeping. Number two, remember one liter of high quality structured water each morning before eating. Number three, eat only when hungry. Do not eat too much too fast and bless your food each and every day. Number four, close your eyes. Put your hands on your heart and relax your nervous system. And number five, only use phones when necessary. Keep your back upright when on the computer and shut down screen time in 90 minutes prior to going to bed. There you go, my friend. I hope you take what you learned in this episode and create the life you deserve. You can support this podcast by going to www.hhphealth.com forward slash review to give us a rating and a review. This helps boost us in the iTunes ratings and makes this podcast more visible to more people in the world. You can also join the discussion on our Facebook community group by going to www.hhphealth forward slash group. And finally, you can also check out all of my current coaching programs, courses, books, podcast episodes, and more by going to www.hhphealth.com. Thank you for being part of the health and healing movement. And until next time, make the rest of your life the best of your life. Aloha.